The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Our scripture text this morning, like a breath of fresh air, comes to us from John 14, and we're going to read verses 18 to 24. John 14, 18 to 24. This passage begins, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me. And I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the fathers who sent me. Let's pray together as we anticipate our pastor's sermon on this awesome text. Oh, Father, how grateful we are to you for these words of your Son, our Savior, that we be shown to love you and thus be loved by you. I pray that these would These words would fill us with pure air, the pure air of your word, and reinvigorate us for a new day and week of life and love in you. In the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. children in front of us had been found in gutters, dumpsters, alleyways, and other deserted corners of the city. Most of them were born with physical or mental disabilities, burdens that felt too heavy to parents already buckling under poverty. So they were left for dead. Our team had traveled to Africa's Horn primarily to train a group of local pastors, but One of our team leaders also coordinated a visit to an orphanage. We rocked infants, laughed with toddlers, encouraged the staff, and prayed over the heads of these abandoned children. On our way out, the staff gathered to thank us for coming. At first, their gratitude seemed a touch over the top, certainly more than our short visit had warranted. 
But I began to understand as one man shared a brief but startling sentence. No one ever visits. Jesus says in our text, he will not leave us as orphans. What a great and comforting promise this is. John 14, in fact, is filled with wonderful promises. And it's vital, it's vital to our lives that we hold on to these promises and believe them. There's a similar promise in the Old Testament that's then attributed to Jesus in Hebrews 13. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So when you feel alone, and many people have felt alone, especially over this past year of of shutdowns, when you feel defeated, discouraged, go to this promise of Jesus. Go to this promise for your emotional, spiritual strength. Go to all of his promises as food for your soul. I love what Thomas Watson, one of my favorite Puritan writers, said. He said that Christ's promises are as the water of life to renew fainting spirits. Uh, recently, I've had, to, had the duty of watering the, the plants, the potted plants, and I'm terrible at this, and I'm often confronted with droopy, ugly-looking plants, and I'm reminded they need daily watering. And we need daily watering of God's Word. We need to remind ourselves of His promises that renew our fainting, droopy spirits. So if this is true for us, let's not forget the context of John 14, that Jesus knows what's coming and how vitally important these promises will be for his disciples that really don't have a clue what's coming. He knows that they don't know, that they don't understand what's coming, and he knows that they will be utterly crushed, devastated by his crucifixion, by his death, that they will feel like helpless, abandoned orphans with no hope, And so he gives them promises to hang on to, to strengthen them, to give them hope. And if this is how Jesus loves and prepares them, then we too need to hang on to the promises of Jesus. And we need to realize he's real. He's a living person. We need to tell ourselves the truth that even though he's physically absent, he's still with us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. In this farewell discourse, we've thought about his promises, promises to make a heavenly home for his followers, to return for them and us, to answer our prayers, to strengthen us for good works and loving obedience by sending the Holy Spirit. And now in verses 18 to 24, Jesus gives even more promises. Promises that have to do with his soon departure. And at the heart of these promises is a central promise that assures us of his ability to keep all of these promises. Jesus promised, because I live, because I live, you also will live. Now, the 
promises of Jesus, yes, they are to us as well as to these original disciples. But an important rule for us when looking at Scripture and rightly interpreting Scripture is always context. What is the context? And a big part of context is there's an audience that's being spoken to, and we're not the primary audience. Of course, it applies to us. Of course, God's Word speaks to us. But Jesus is addressing his original disciples. So again, since we belong to Jesus, the promises are true for us. But some of what Jesus says here is very specific to these original disciples. Unlike them, we know that the cross will result in a resurrection. We know what will happen. And this is why he gives the image of an orphan. He knows that the shock, he knows the shock that they'll experience, that it'll be this kind of hurt, the feeling of being left alone after Jesus dies. And there's something, there's something about being alone, something that people underestimate as being more painful than most anything else. Uh, A month or so ago when I was um, spending way too much time on the couch, I watched way too much TV. And one of the shows that I watched, I got hooked on this survival uh, series called Alone. Um, Interesting that it's put out by the History Channel. I wonder if the History Channel actually has any history on the History Channel. Um, This obviously not one. If you're familiar with this series, or if you're not familiar with it, it's a competition. It's a reality uh, series competition. They drop 10 people off in the wilderness at different locations. No camera crew with them. They are alone. They send them with their own camera, their GoPros. They have to film everything. And these are amazingly capable people experienced in the in the area of outdoor survival. So it's really fascinating. If you watch it, uh, here's a pattern that I noticed in watching this. They, (laughs) it seems like most of them are pagans (laughs) because they are giving thanks to the fish. Thank you, fish, for giving your life for me, as if it had a choice as they eat it. Uh, Thank you, lake. Thank you, you know, everything but thank you to to God. But what eventually, and and what's really interesting about this to me is they're speaking to, they make up imaginary friends, they're speaking to the fish, anything, because they can't handle being alone. And the pattern in this is that what drives most of them crazy and causes them to pick up the phone and say, come pick me up, I tap out, is that they can't handle being alone. That's what seems to get to them more than anything. They are so capable. They build these amazing shelters, they gather food, they hunt with bow and arrow, they trap, they survive weeks and weeks. Um, And what gets to them ultimately is not the hunger, it's not the freezing conditions, it's being completely alone. And it made me think of Tom Hanks in Castaway, where he befriends this volleyball and names it Wilson, because you gotta talk to someone. And we know as Christians that we're never alone because God is with us. But these people, they, 
the pattern is that they go crazy because they can't handle being alone. And, and it's true. It's not good for man to be alone. And isn't this why God created Eve? And isn't this the point of God's presence with his people, tabernacling with them in the wilderness, coming in the person of Jesus, the word made flesh, dwelling among us. And now the promise of the Holy Spirit, who will not just be with us, but in us. This is the ultimate blessing to us, to dwell with God. Like Adam and Eve before sin, in the garden. And our ultimate hope given to us in Revelation chapter 21 that says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Jesus knew that his disciples would feel like abandoned orphans. And so he strengthens them for the coming dark hour by promising I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So even though this promise can be applied to us, it primarily had to do with these disciples and what they would experience, how they would be devastated by Jesus' death on the cross. The what of Jesus' promise, the what of Jesus' promise, says to these disciples, I will not abandon you. I will come to you. And think of how valuable those words were. We might hear this, and the application to us is either that Jesus is present with us now in the Holy Spirit, or we look forward to the day where he comes again, where he will come to us. But for them, it was a promise that would be fulfilled in a few days. The what of Jesus' promise leads to a question of when. When will you come to us, Jesus? Now, some scholars hear, um, read that and they interpret it as speaking of the second coming or the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. But really the best understanding um, of when Jesus will come is his appearance to his disciples after his resurrection. Verse 19 gives us some clues to when. Jesus says, yet a little while. And he also speaks of being removed from the world's sight. When he died, he was removed from the world's sight. And when he was raised for 40 days, for 40 days before his ascension to heaven, he appeared to whom? He appeared, he appeared, he came to, he appeared to his disciples. And the result of these appearances is exactly what Jesus says they will be in this text. When Jesus says in verse 19, but you will see me, the word for see means perceive. When you, he says, you will see me. So he's saying there's going to be a different kind of seeing when I come to you. You will perceive me. He's not simply saying that they will see him with their physical eyes, but that because he comes to them resurrected, they will truly see him for who he is. They've been with him and they really don't know who he is. But when he comes to them, they will perceive, they will know, they will be changed. They'll have a new and a true perception of Jesus. 
And the evidence of this is seen in the transformation of their lives. These disciples, they turn the world upside down. They turn the world upside down, doing what Jesus promised earlier in John 14, doing even greater works than he. Speaking of the spread of the gospel. Yes, they certainly did see. They clearly perceived who Jesus is because of his resurrection appearances. His promise is true. And these disciples, they were never the same. Jesus did come to them as he promised. He showed them his wounds. He invited them to touch and see. He ate fish with them, proving that he's not some ghost. He was truly alive. Thomas, we know, put his fingers in Jesus' side, enabling him to believe, to truly see, and to express to Jesus that who he really was, both Lord and God. They saw the truth. We see it in the life of Peter, who denied Jesus, afraid of a little girl, and then boldly proclaimed, proclaims the resurrection, preaching at Pentecost. But this scene was not just, it wasn't just a human reasoning as a result of evidence. It was a spiritual resurrection as well. It was a spiritual resurrection that enabled them to see with eyes of faith. And this is where the promise applies to us. Jesus said to them, and he says to you, Because I live, you also will live. Because Jesus rose from the grave, he he will raise our physical bodies as well. Because of his physical resurrection, we are promised a physical resurrection. But the promise is more. It's also a seeing. It's a perceiving that that comes to us by the Holy Spirit. His work of of a spiritual new birth in us, regeneration. Here's how Richard Phillips describes this. He said, Jesus comes to us today in the gospel message and in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When he calls us to new life and faith, we too are brought into saving union with God's eternal life. Thus, when we come to know that Christ is one with the Father, we also realize that this union is in turn the pattern for the relationship between Christ and his followers. Jesus says in full, in that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. We live because he lives. We're joined to Jesus who is one with the Father, who indwells us with his spirit. And we live only because we belong to and are now in Christ. We are united to God and God cannot die. In Ephesians 2, Paul said that God made us alive together with Christ. Through faith in Jesus, we are united to him and he has given us resurrection life, promising that we'll live and reign with him forever. So we've considered there's a what in in these promises, a what and a when of Jesus' promise, but now I want to think about the question of how. 
how in relationship to how will how will they move how will these disciples move how will we move from this initial perceiving of Jesus to a growing knowledge and love for him and Jesus speaks to this here you know we get excited about a lot of things and then I mean, this is the experience of life. You get excited about a lot of things, these big moments in life, and then you take them for granted. Then you settle in, and life becomes a bit normal again. And even even in significant events like a marriage, the birth of a child, a new home, a new career, we get really excited, and we feel like we're a new person, and those initial feelings of excitement, they tend to fade. They tend to change. And even, this is sadly even true with our salvation. That initial joy sometimes can fade into a dry season where we take everything for granted. And the question of how here is how can we grow? How can we increase instead of settle in and take things for granted, take the Lord for granted and decrease? How can we grow? Well, Jesus gives a promise concerning how. And the how has to do, once again, with obedience. Obedience. In verse 21, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Look at the result here. He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Again, I want to make the point that the attitude Jesus points us to is not concerning obedience of, oh, I guess I have to. But we need to have a different attitude. Because of our love for him, we need to say we get to. What a privilege. We get to. I really want to obey Jesus. It makes me happy to obey Jesus. And now, there's something else in this text. I don't know if you picked up on and scratched your head over that I think needs some clarification. There's an interesting cause and effect here. A cause and effect that may confuse people's understanding of grace. Jesus says that our obedience communicates our love for him and that our love for him results in something. What does it result in? The Father's love toward us. And that sounds a little backwards. Someone might wrongly conclude that God's saving love is not by free grace, but it's, it's a result of doing the commands which prove our love and that this will result in God's saving love to us. And we know by the rest of scripture, by the clear teaching of the gospel, that that is not a right interpretation. That is not a right conclusion to come to. We know that it's God who initiates his love and that the reason that we love him is that he first loved us. So God's saving love is not a response to our love, but instead our love for him, our obedience that shows that's done out of love for him, it's a result of his love that was first poured into us, graciously given to us. So then we might 
Okay, come back to this text and say, okay, well, then what does this mean? Here's a helpful distinction for you. There's a difference between God's love of compassion and his love of delight in the things that please him. God's love of compassion is his mercy given to those who were in rebellion to him, who hated him, which is all of us at one point. This is his grace. This is God being the initiator of love that changes us and creates within us a response of faith and love. So what Jesus has in mind here is that our our loving obedience that's only possible because God first loved us, this love of ours is pleasing to the Father which results in his love of delight given to us in spiritual blessings, blessings of a growing knowledge and love for him, growing in our appreciation for him. So it's a a pleasing love given to us. So how will we grow in our knowledge and love of Jesus? Obedience. Obedience. Our obedience pleases the Father. And sometimes I remember hearing, you know, we are so accustomed to to saying, all my works are nothing but filthy rags. And that's speaking of, that's speaking of salvation. We can't earn God's salvation. I remember R.C. Sproul correcting that saying, no, as a Christian, our good works are fruit of the spirit. So don't call the fruit of the spirit filthy rags. It's precious. It's beautiful. So we have that distinction there. How will we grow in our love for Jesus? Obedience. Our obedience pleases him. But another thing we see is that Jesus says at the end of verse 21, our obedience will result in Jesus manifesting himself to us. Manifesting, revealing, showing. Or we might say that, Our obedient love to him will result in Jesus making himself very real to us. Increasingly real to us. Our ascended Lord ministers to us through the Holy Spirit. And something the Holy Spirit does is that he reveals God's word to us. He guides and teaches us through the Bible. And Jesus mentions his word four times in verses 21 through 24. So this is the context. God's word. So loving, lovingly obeying his commands leads to pleasing the Father who blesses us. And Jesus reveals himself to us in his word. And when Christ manifests or reveals himself to us in the Bible... He doesn't intend for us to hide away in our theological studies like some monks or something. Never engaging with people and real life. No, the time spent, we need to be reading and studying God's Word. But the time spent studying, if we're really hearing, and Jesus manifests himself, reveals himself to us as we read, it will compel us to go. It will compel us to do what Jesus commands of us. And we will lovingly, willingly, 
get to obey Him. Doing His will in our jobs. Doing His will in our families, in our marriages, around our community. Being salt and light. Standing out as those who have the mind, the attitude of Jesus. Jesus who was selfless and sacrificial in His love. Humble. And when you think of our self-centered, arrogant culture, this kind of living and going, this sacrificial loving, it ought to stand out. It will stand out. If your relationship with Jesus is dry and dull, it's because you're not in the Word. It's because you're not obediently responding to what He says. Right theology will always result in a lifestyle that glorifies and pleases God. Now to some, uh, you might hear this and, and think, well, that just sounds way too formulaic. Do this, get that. Expect that. But when Jesus, let's just bring it back to, when Jesus gives a promise, shouldn't we believe him? <laughs> shouldn't we believe him? Yes, it may be that our expectations are different than the loving, all-wise, and perfect gift that he gives us. And yet faith still receives it as coming from the Father of lights who knows best how to bless us and manifest Christ to us. So our expectations might be wrong, but he will bless you. He will give you good gifts. For us, it's a matter of faith in his promises. Listen to him in his word. Do what he commands. Talk to him in prayer. Seek the Spirit's help as he calls alongside of you to encourage a life that glorifies Jesus through the fruit, through the fruit that he gives you. Finally, so we thought about the what and the when and the how concerning Jesus' promises here. There's a question of why. And the why is something that the other Judas, not Iscariot, is it Thaddeus? I think Thaddeus is also what he was called. It's what he brings up, what he asks in verse 22. He, he asks, Lord... Why are you going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So there's a why in, that we need to deal with. And Jesus' answer is this in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And oftentimes Jesus' answers don't seem like answers to us. But the why... The answer here has to do with home. God's purpose, God's plan from the very beginning was to redeem a people for himself. To graciously save and work in them. To transform and set apart a people for himself. A people who would love him in holiness, be indwelt by him in love. So the Bible speaks of God choosing to love a people. And he always had, people get hung up on predestination and election. 
Didn't he always have a chosen people? Didn't he always have his own sheep? It's never been because they were better. It's never been because they were more deserving. No, it's always about him. It's always about his glory to show, to exalt his mercy and grace that he might change us into those who are zealous for good works, that he might dwell in our midst. It's home, home. The very best blessing that God can give you is himself, home. In the garden, we see this blessed communion as he walks with Adam and Eve. Later on, God graciously chose a people for himself and he dwelt in their midst, manifesting himself visually and in the tabernacle. And then, what did he do? He tabernacled with his people in the person of Jesus. God the Son, the Word made flesh, dwelt, made his home among us. And now, as the Son ascends to heaven after his death and resurrection, he sends another helper to not only be with us, but to make his home in us. It's home. It's God's intention to have a people to commune with us, to commune with them, guiding us by his spirit, through his word, dwelling in our hearts. And what a grace. What a grace that he would love us and be with us and promise to never leave or forsake us. And this grace, this love poured into us compels us to grow in our love for him. Which means that we get to. We get to obey him. We get to go and make disciples. We get to love people. And glorify Christ as we become his hands and feet and to the world around us. And an example of what this looks like was described in that short, seemingly insignificant visit to an orphanage. Author Scott Hubbard, he went on to write this. Since returning home, I've wondered about people around me who might echo the words we heard at the orphanage. What neighbors, what church members, what relatives are watching hordes of people pass by while they quietly ache for a visitor? Westerners may not walk past many orphanages, but we constantly walk past people who feel forgotten, neglected, desperately lonely, the depressed, the disabled, the socially awkward, the grieving, the elderly. Though often surrounded by people, many of the most hurting rarely receive a visitor. They rarely find someone who will not merely brush by with a smile, but will stop, sit, and linger for a while. Someone who will climb down into the miry bog of their complex problems and place a tender hand on their shoulder. When we visit the needy, we are reflecting the image of our visiting God. We are joining Jesus on the roads of love. We are following at our Father's heels. Visiting 
gives the hurting categories for grasping what God is like. When we visit, we take God's promises and give them a body, our own body. We take God's testimony about himself and bring it into living rooms and coffee shops and front porches. And as we do, we help desperate people believe that God might actually be as good as he says he is. When we listen to a depressed 20-something with steadfast patience, we are embodying God's invitation to come and pour out your heart before him. When we befriend an autistic neighbor and labor to understand his peculiar world, we are displaying on a small scale God's intimate knowledge and care for him. When we engage in a conversation with a socially awkward small group member, not looking for an escape, but pressing in, with creative questions. We illustrate the warm welcome Jesus offers to us in the gospel. When we pursue the grieving, not only in the weeks after loss, but months and even years later, we act out God's ongoing healing and comfort on a miniature stage. When we visit the nursing home to hear the stories, even if we've heard them ten times, we become a flesh and blood symbol of God's promise. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Of course, God can use his word to communicate all of these truths about himself in the absence of visitors, and he often does. But God loves to carve his people into little images of himself and send them out as ambassadors of his character. He loves to bring his children into rooms where visitors rarely enter, whether in an orphanage in Africa or in the kitchen across the street, and reveal himself through hands and hugs and mouths and ears. Every day, we walk past people who could say the same words I heard at the orphanage. No one ever visits. As we visit the hurting, consistently imitating our Father and speaking his word, our aim is not simply to leave them saying, someone finally visited me, but to leave them with the holy sense that through us, God himself has visited them. Let's pray. Oh, Father, open our eyes to the many ways that we can stop and be used by you to communicate your love. And what a great example of this kind of love in the various Johnny and Friends family retreats. Lord, please bless. Bless the campers with a sense of your visiting love for them given through the many STMs. All who have gone to serve, we ask for their health and strength and joy. Jesus, manifest yourself to them. Make yourself known. We ask for your blessing over this time at Twin Rocks. Lord, you're so good to us. Thank you for your promises to us. Strengthen our faith as we hear your word and as we obediently go and do what you command. 
and give us the motive of love, knowing that it pleases you, God, knowing that you will reveal yourself to us, knowing that our home is with you, knowing that all of this is true because you, Jesus, live. We pray in your great name. Amen.